Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. Week three of our series, Up and to the Right, and I want to start by reading to you a letter from a, uh, that was written to a pastor. This pastor is on the radio, he's fairly well known, and you know, those guys when they're on the radio like that, they get lots of correspondence. A lot of people are writing to them, saying things, and, and you know, they touch a lot of people that way, and so this is a letter that this pastor got from, from someone. It says, Dear Pastor... I heard your program on the radio. I thought you might be able to help me with my dilemma. I'm sure you're familiar with the old U2 song, I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. That line could be the theme for my life. It's a strange feeling since I have by all standards achieved everything that most people work their entire life for. My success as an investment banker has given me multiple homes, nice cars, and the kind of perks and luxuries you would expect. I am married to a great woman. I have two young kids that I adore. I enjoy good health. All of this came at a much earlier age than I figured it would take, and yet, and yet, I'm just not as happy as I think I should be. To be honest, I'm often restless. I'm often bored. I'm often unsatisfied in my life. Sometimes at night I feel hollow and empty and I keep thinking there's got to be more to life than this. What do you think I should do? Did you know that there's an entire book of the Bible dedicated to this very thing? It's called the book of Ecclesiastes. It is uh, written by another guy who had it all. His name was Solomon, son of David. Solomon writes this book as somewhat of a midlife crisis thing. It's pretty much a depressing book until it gets to the end where Solomon realizes, I guess it's all about God. And Solomon says, I decided that my life was empty. It didn't have a lot of meaning. I didn't feel very fulfilled by any of that. I've got good things going in my life, but I still wasn't very satisfied. So he starts off on this search and he tries all these different things to find satisfaction in life, and all of them are dead ends. In fact, in the first chapter of Ecclesiastes, he starts off and he says, I'm going to get an education. Maybe that'll do the trick. And so I just think if I get smart, it'll be really satisfying for me. If I learned everything that you could possibly learn and read everything that you could possibly read. And he said, in the making of books, there is much weariness said every college student or every student I've ever known, right? In the making of books, there is much weariness. And Solomon says when, when he got all of that knowledge and all that education, he realized, he was, I'm still empty. And then he decided he would chase after career. And he would set some goals. And Solomon met and exceeded them all. He, was, he became the king of his nation, He started all kinds of public works projects. He did all kinds of achievements. He had great accomplishments that he could point back on and say, I did that. And Solomon said, I still feel empty. Then Solomon thought, maybe money is the answer. I'll just get more money. And Solomon went out and amassed a fortune. Solomon would become the wealthiest man in the world in his day. The queen of Sheba would come to visit Solomon, and she would say of his wealth, he has more wealth than any, this, there's more here than any other place I've ever been on the planet. She was greatly impressed by the wealth of Solomon. And Solomon said, I've amassed this great fortune. I have great wealth. I've bought myself all kinds of nice things. I've invested in art, I've invested in all kinds of possessions, but I still feel empty. And then Solomon thought, maybe being famous will do the trick. I'll get popular. It left him empty. Then he thought to himself, maybe it's just all about having fun. I'll just go have fun, I'm going to go party, have a good time, be surrounded by my friends. He tried wine, women, and song, nothing fulfilled him. And he said, I partied until my heart's content. But then he said, it left me empty. And he said, whenever somebody tells you that it's going to give you satisfaction, you just need to know they're not telling you the truth. He said, there was a hunger inside of me that was not being satisfied. I'm sure you've done this. You're hungry, you want a snack, 
you, you go to your refrigerator, you open it up, and you stand there. And there's last night's meatloaf, there's, you know, there's the, the Mexican that you brought home from lunch when you went out with some friends at work. There's some stuff in there that you could eat, but that means you got to cook and you're not doing that, you know. And really, we're just, we just kind of stand there in a stupor, and I, I don't know what, we're just kind of waiting on something to jump out and say, eat me, right? Like, and, and you just don't know what you want. You know you're hungry, but you don't know exactly what you want. You ever done that? Jesus says having spiritual hunger is a good thing. In fact... He said it was one of the eight keys to having a blessed life. When he talked about the Beatitudes in the most famous Sermon on the Mount, he said to stay spiritually hungry is one of the things that will really be a blessing. Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. That word filled in a lot of translations is, is rendered fully satisfied. They're going to have a life that is satisfied, fulfilled, but you've got to hunger and thirst for the, the right thing in order to be fulfilled in life. You've got to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, that word righteousness, uh, if Jesus says it's one of the keys, you know, if you want to move up and to the right in your life, if you want to have blessing, if you want things to be good, how do I hunger for how do I hunger and thirst for righteousness if I don't really know what righteousness is? I mean, I think one of the things that happens is, you know, people that are far from God or that they don't go to church or you know they think about it, but they went one time and and the pastor used a word like righteous and he's like, you know, your friend says, I don't even I don't even know what that means. That, that, those are words that I don't use in my vocabulary. Those are words I can't define. That's why I don't like going to church. Well. Righteousness is a big word in Scripture. It's used hundreds of times. We're told that God is righteous. We're told that the Word of God is righteous. We're told that God founded the universe and His kingdom upon righteousness. Scripture says that God loves righteousness. He rewards righteousness in the people in whom He sees it. Noah was a righteous man. Abraham was a righteous man. And Scripture says that one day God is going to judge the world in righteousness. Now that sounds ominous. Then you have that famous psalm, Psalm 23, in verse 3, it says, He leads me in paths of righteousness. So what in the world does the word mean? You could look this word up, it would have 26 or 7 probably pages of, of uh, theological definition, but I've been teaching you this word for years. I've been teaching you how to translate this word for years. Uh, so those of you who know, say it with me. Righteousness is what? A right standing with God. If you've never heard that before, write that down. A right standing with God. That's what righteous means. That you have a right standing with God. Romans chapter 1. The good news shows how God makes people right with himself. I want you to notice God makes you right with him. You don't make yourself right. This is something that God does for you. And in a moment, we're going to look in detail at the good news and why it is such good news. So, um, one thing that righteousness is, is righteousness is relationship, right standing with God. A right standing that He gives you, not something that you do yourself. And then secondly, uh, the second thing about righteousness is it's a lifestyle. It means living right, living right as God intends. So another way you could say these two is being right and living right. It's, it's being right and it's living right. So it's, it's position and it's practice. 1 John chapter 2, verse 29, all who practice righteousness are God's true children. So today I want to teach you to do two things. First, how does God make us right with him? We're going to talk about that. And then, how do I keep this spiritual hunger for the rest of my life? But before we, we get there, I want to ask you this question, why should I even care about this? Why should I care about being right with God? My friends don't seem to be too worried about that. People at work aren't worried about that. i got family members that could care less about whether or not they're right with God. You know, students in here might say, you know, I go to school, there's nobody around me that really cares about being 
right with God? Why in the world should I care about righteousness? Why should I hunger and thirst for these two things? In a nutshell, there are two reasons. It's the only way to live. And secondly, it's the only way to heaven. Proverbs chapter 12 says, Righteousness is the road to life and path to immortality. And when you hear it like that, you're like, okay, I'm, put, put it like that, I might be interested. Road to life, what, what does that mean? It, it means that you are disconnected from God, and, and when you're disconnected from God, you're really not living, you're just existing. Most people in the world aren't really fully alive, they're just existing. Let me kind of explain what I'm trying to get you to see. You've heard me talk a lot about my buddy Michael. Michael and I are, are very, very close. And the family dynamics are we're not blood-related, but the way we were raised, it's, we're kind of raised like cousins. So we, I've known him since I was a little, little guy. There's pictures of he and I together riding little John Deere tractors together, right? Like little. And I was raised differently than him. I was raised with a mother who took me to church. We didn't miss church. I, I, you know, junior in high school, senior in high school, I was in youth group. You know, my, my pastors my whole life have told me, you've got gifts for ministry, you need to think about going into ministry. Michael didn't have any of that. Michael didn't have a great church to go to. He didn't have a pastor that he could really look up to. His, his family wasn't that interested in church. They went a little bit, but, and he's got a little bit of background in church, but not a lot. I went off to Bible college. Michael went off to DePaul University and studied uh, physics. And so I'm learning more and more about Jesus, and Michael's learning more and more about whatever they do in, in fraternities <laughs> at DePaul. And he's got some great stories, let me tell you. And we talked about a lot of things, and it was always fun and good, and you know, I've always just loved being with him and hearing what he had to say. But then he got married, and I can't remember whether they had had kids yet or not, but they lived right down the road from a little Baptist church in Mitchell, and... and uh, he would, they would walk to church, and he went with his wife kind of to appease her and just, you know, not make her go by herself, and, but he wasn't really into it. But the more he went, the pastor there was kind of connecting with him, and they'd played golf a little bit together and starting to get to Michael a little bit. And one day, walking home from church, he, he looked at Rochelle, and he said, he said, babe, I either want to do this with my whole life, I want to do it wholeheartedly with my whole life, or I don't ever want to go to church again a day in my life. Now you're the wife, what would you say? Let's dive in. So they did. And that began a, a lifelong pursuit for Michael of Jesus. And when that happened, I was elated to hear it. I just, it was the best news I'd ever heard. And when that happened, my relationship with Michael took on a whole new perspective because now I could talk to him about things that we'd never talked about before now our conversations were so deep so rich we we would probe the depths of spiritual um, you know what things meant spiritually and we, now um, the kids took on a whole different uh, feel and and how we raised them and how we talked about all that stuff it just all changed he, Michael went from just living to from just existing to living. Now he saw things in a different light. He saw the significance of things that he'd never seen before. And what happens is most people are just kind of stringing their days together and they're existing. But when you come to God and Christ comes into your heart, now something different happens. You start to see the world in a whole new way. You are called in ways you've never been called before. And if you're really doing it right, you're leaning into God and you're trusting him for things where you're basically saying, God, if you don't show up, I'm in big trouble, okay? I need you. And there's just something really cool about living that kind of life. And I can tell you, when you're doing that, you're not just existing. You're living. But a lot of people just don't have a connection to God. To be disconnected from the Creator who created you for a purpose is nonsense. To live your life saying, you know, I know I was created by God for a purpose, and I know that I was created by a creator who, who wants a relationship with me, but I don't really care about that. That's crazy. You're not really living. 
You're just kind of existing. St. Augustine said, Thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until we find our peace in thee. You are made by God. You are made for God. And, and until you understand that, it's, it's not, life's not going to really fully make sense for you. Life isn't about the acquisition of things and getting more possessions, the achievement of goals. It's not about any of that stuff. It's about getting to know God, a God who loves you, who made you for a purpose. You're not really living until you are right with God. But not only is it good here on earth, Scripture says righteousness is the path to immortality. In other words, it's the way to get to heaven. It's how we get to heaven. God is not going to force somebody to go to heaven. It's a choice. You, you choose to go to heaven. It's, it's on God's terms. God created heaven as a place for his children. He loves you. He, he wants more than anything for you to be with him forever and ever. God has long-term plans for you in your life, but at the end of all that, he wants you to be with him in heaven, but he will not force you to go to heaven. And so he gives you a choice. You can spend your life with him, connected to him, or you can spend it disconnected from him. If you want to, you can rebel against God, ignore God entirely, and pretend that God doesn't exist. Many do. A lot of people do that. A lot of people say they're atheists, and they're whistling in the dark, like, boy, I hope I'm right. I'm just going to say I'm an atheist, and I'm not going to believe, and, you know, I hope I'm right. You can disobey God. You can be apathetic toward him, and God will say, Burger King. Have it your way. Do it however you want to do it. God never forces you to love him because if you're forced, it's not love. So God gives you a choice because he loves you. And many have said, you know what? I don't want to love God. I don't want to live my life that way. And God says, have it your way. The only problem is one day we're going to stand before God and I think what God might say is, why did you want to spend an eternity disconnected from me but now when it comes to heaven, you want to be connected to me? And some will spend an eternity apart from God. Why would anybody say, I want to live my entire earthly existence apart from God, but when, I, when it comes to heaven, I want to spend the rest of eternity with God. I want to be in his presence and be in his love. Really? I mean, in both cases, God would simply say, have it your way. I mean, you know, if you don't want anything to do with me, I understand. I've heard people protest, I simply cannot follow a God that would send people to hell. Have you ever heard that? I can't follow, pe I can't follow a God that sends people to hell. Listen, the person who spends an eternity apart from God does so in spite of everything God did to see to it that that never happens. The last thing he wants is for anybody to spend an eternity apart from him. But here's the thing that you have to understand about God, and people miss this. God is just. He is perfectly fair, and he is just. Now, I know you've been through things in your life, and you've probably said, God, this isn't fair. Like, you think you know what fair is, and you think God's not being fair. Just trust me when I tell you, ultimately, at the end of the day, we're going to find out that God is perfectly just and he is perfectly fair and one of the th ways that he shows that is you don't spend an eternity with him unless you get right with him so god doesn't send you to a place where you will not no longer you spend an eternity apart from him he doesn't send you to hell he's done everything he can to keep you from that so next time somebody says that you just make sure you you lay it out for him God says, I gave you a choice to be in relationship with me, to be connected with me, to spend an eternity with me. God wants you to choose to love him. Now, what is his plan? The verse says, the good news shows us how God makes people right with himself. How does he do that? What's God's plan to make you righteous? If righteousness is the only way to live and it's the only way to get to heaven, how does God make you righteous? It's called the Gospels, what we call it. I don't know if you've ever... Um, had anybody explained to you what, the, what gospel means, it means good news. The gospel means good news. So today, one of the things I want to do is I'm going to take you back to the basics. You, you might know all this that I'm about to say. And if you do, that's great. 
But some of you know some unchurched friends. You have unchurched friends. That they're far from God. And you may be the one one of these days that needs to work them through the ABCs that I'm about to give you. They're not literal ABCs, but basics. So I've given you an outline so that you can write some things down. Part one of this, part one of the first part of the gospel is I can't make myself righteous. I can't do it myself. That's a fact. We are all imperfect. We have all blown it. The cross-lane vernacular is we are all jacked up, right? We're just a, we're a jacked up mess. I don't measure up to my own standards. Have you ever apologized to somebody? If you've ever apologized to somebody, what you're really saying is, I had a standard for my life that I did not match up to. I let myself down and I apologize to you for not keeping a standard that I had set for myself. Now, if you can't keep your own standards, how do you think you're doing with God's standards? Not very good. We're all jacked up. Scripture says in Jeremiah 13, can a leopard change its spots? The answer is no. So how do I, an imperfect person, become perfect? And why is that important? Here's why, because heaven is a perfect place. Scripture says in heaven there's no sin, no sadness, uh, no sorrow, no sickness, no evil, no bad news from a doctor, no cancer, no old age, none of that. No bad hips and bad backs and wonky knees. No injustice, no hatred, no racial problems. Heaven is a perfect place. And the problem is, I'm imperfect, and you're imperfect. So if God let imperfect people into heaven, heaven would be no better than earth. And if he let us come to heaven with our sins and our faults and our weaknesses, there would be all the things that we have on earth. There'd be rape and murder and, and, and gossip and, and you know, greed and all the things that we bring to the table with the sin that we have, it would be no better than earth. So God cannot let people, sinful people into heaven, so there's a problem there. So God came up with a plan, and that is the good news, the gospel. But somehow, God has to take care of my unrighteousness and your unrighteousness so that we can get perfect. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse, verse 20 says, Indeed, there is no one on earth who is righteous. No one does what is right and never sins. That's you and me. And everybody in between. We are all unrighteous. Romans 3 says it like this, For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. The law is nothing more than a mirror. That you hold up to yourself and you look into it and it tells you, you don't measure up to the standard of God. You remember when you were 16 and you had a hot date and you looked in the mirror? And the mirror told you the truth. There's a big old zit right there. And you looked away and you thought, I'm going to look again. And I just know that's not going to be there. And you looked again and it got bigger. And you're like, oh my goodness, this girl is hot and I have a zit. I mean, that's what the law is like. You look into the law and the law tells you, you don't keep the law. You're, you're jacked up. You're imperfect. You need help. God's law requires perfection, and none of us are perfect. And when we look into the law, we realize that. There's some people who believe that they're going to go to heaven because they keep the Ten Commandments, which always makes me chuckle because, you know, what I want to do is say, can you even quote to me the Ten Commandments? Do you even know what they are? Because I'll be honest with you, I'm not sure I could nail them all right now, just right off the top of my head. And if I can't, I venture to say most other people can't either but i keep the ten commandments do you really besides that we learned in the wildfire series that the ten commandments weren't even written to us they were written to the hebrew nation that's not those aren't written to us what was written to you is the christian bible the new testament in which jesus makes it perfectly clear that it's about way more than just keeping the ten commandments jesus said you've heard it said do not commit murder. <laughs> okay, well, I can do that, Jesus. I can, I can do that. I tell you, if you even have hatred in your heart for somebody, you have committed murder. Whoa. 
What? Yeah, I'm telling you that if you even hate someone, which is something that nobody can necessarily see, something that you might carry, a hatred for somebody, deep down that you don't ever talk about, nobody sees it, as far as everybody knows, you're nice, you're so nice. But you've got a hatred. And Jesus said, if you've got a hatred, you've murdered him. He didn't stop there, as if that's bad, not bad enough. He didn't stop there. He said, hey, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. Because in our culture, that's bad, right? Don't commit adultery. <clears throat> he says, I tell you, men hate this. I hate this. He said, I tell you, if you even have lust in your heart for a woman, you have committed adultery. And all the men go, ooh. Because see, here's the thing. We can, that can happen for us, and nobody needs to know. We don't, may not talk about it. But boy, it's there. And Jesus says, yeah, that's the thing. See, I'm, I'm, I'm about the spirit. I'm about what's going on on the inside of you, that part that you're able to hide from everybody else. But I see. And when you have that going on, it's, to me, it's just like you did it. And so, you know, we just, <laughs> we don't get around this. We're, none of us are perfect. Scripture says we all fall short of the glory of God. You might hear somebody say, well, I'm, I'm better than most people. And they may be, but here's the problem. It's kind of like some swimmers are better than other swimmers. But let's say, let's say that we all live in California. Now, I for one am glad I don't live in California, but let's just say for the sake of this illustration, we live in California, and Hawaii is heaven, and we all want to go to heaven. And so, we're swimmers, and so we're, the way to get to Hawaii is the only way you get there is you swim. And so first dude jumps in the water, and he starts swimming, and he's a pretty good swimmer, and he gets about 15 miles, and then he drowns. Next guy jumps in. He's a pretty good swimmer. He can go farther than 15 miles. He gets about 30 miles, and then he drowns. The next guy's an Olympic-class, really good distance swimmer. <clears throat> he gets in, you know, 50 miles, maybe 100 you're not getting much further than that, I don't think. I don't know what the statistics are, but here's what I can tell you. He's not, you're not going to make it to Hawaii. And he drowns. I don't care how good a swimmer you are, you're not a good enough swimmer to go from California to Hawaii. You're not going to make that. Now, I know they do things like swim the English Channel and stuff, and they feed you along the way, and they have boats and support and, you know, jaw ca uh, shark cages and all that kind of stuff. I'm just talking about... You and your two arms and your little flipper feet trying to get from California to Hawaii. You're not, you're not getting there. Doesn't matter how good a swimmer you are, you're not getting there. That's the reality for us from a spiritual perspective. You're not getting there on your own. So we're not good enough on our own. God had a plan. God sent Jesus, number two, God sent Jesus to pay for my sins so that I could be declared righteous and I could get in on the righteousness of of Jesus, the right standing with God. Let's pretend that you steal something and you go to court and the penalty, if you're found guilty, is 20 years. They're going to put you away for 20 years. And, and they make the case, they, they, the jury comes back, they agree you're guilty, judge drops the gavel, pronounces you guilty, 20 years, and then the judge comes down and he stands next to you and he unzips his robe and he lays it aside, and he pronounces to everyone in the courtroom, and I'm going I'm to serve that sentence for him. That's what God did for you and me. He pronounces the judgment because God is just. He pronounces the judgment, and then he comes down because God is love, and he says, I'm going to pay for it. Are you still guilty? Yes, you're still guilty. But now the judge has become your Savior. That's what God did for you. When you break God's laws, you pay God's penalties. You break man's laws, you, break, you pay man's penalties. Scripture says the wages of sin is death. That means somebody has to pay for all of the bad things that I've done that have hurt other people. Either I'm going to pay for it or Jesus is going to pay for it. Someone has to pay. And the judge says, I'm going to be the Savior. I'm going to be the, the person who comes to earth in the form of of a man, I'm going to die for your sins so that you don't have to pay, and now you can be with me forever. Do you understand why the scriptures call this the good news, the gospel? 
It's the best news ever. Everything that you have ever done. Now, see, most of you understand this. When you come to Christ, you know that you're, you're, you've, God has forgiven you for everything that you've ever done. But here's the thing that, that pastors a lot of times don't tell you. And even as I say this, there are some people in the room that are going to hear me say this and go, Brett, don't tell them that. But here's what I'm telling you. Not only are you forgiven for what you have done, you are forgiven for everything that you're ever going to do in your life. If you live to be 95 years old, everything you are ever going to do in your life is already forgiven if you have received the forgiveness of Christ and what he did for you on the cross. Now, some people hear me say that and they're like, Brett, don't tell them that. Why do they not want me to tell you that? Because they want me to control your behavior with religion. And they want me to say, you'll burn in hell if you do all that stuff. But that's not the reality. The reality is Christ died once for all. And when you receive his forgiveness, that is a forever thing. Here's a question for you. Is God really surprised when you sin? No. Is it a newsflash to say to Jesus, Jesus, I know that in the future I'm still going to sin and make mistakes and I'm not going to get this right. Jesus does not say, well, I did not know that or I wouldn't have gone to the cross. No. Jesus says, no, I'm aware of that. See, we're sinners. That's what we are. Now, that's not a pass That's because that's what people are worried about. Brett, you're just giving them a pass. No, I'm not. To go and do that willingly, to go sin willingly, is to basically scoff at the cross and say, you know, I'm just going to take advantage. I'm just going to be a user. That's not who we are. That's not what we're about. That's not, I'm about maturity and growth. If you're an immature believer, you might go, well, you know, good for me. I get to do all this other stuff, and I'm still forgiven. That's a way to live your life. I'm just telling you, if you do that, it's going to cost you. You're going to jack your life. You think your life is jacked up now. Just take that attitude. Well, I can sin. I can do whatever I want. Your life will be so jacked up. It, you know, you're going to look up one day and go, how did I get here? Because you didn't take this seriously and you didn't perceive, you weren't hunger and thirst for righteousness. Jesus said, it is finished. He didn't say, I'm finished. It is finished. I have paid for sin. Now, here's the thing that I want you to understand. I want to teach you the difference between a gift and a present. A lot of this is Jesus talk kind of stuff. This is what I do with people when I'm talking to them about coming to Christ. I want to teach you the difference between a present and a gift. A present is what is presented to you, but it's not a gift until you receive it. Right? So forgiveness has been presented to you, but you don't get the benefit of it. You don't get forgiven of all your sin until you say, I, I'm going to receive that. I want that. That's the good news. Jesus paying for the sin of the world. And he, he lifts his head through all the pain and sorrow and agony and he says, it is finished. I did it. I paid for it. The difference between Christianity and every other worldview, the difference between Christianity and every other religion you can think of, in every other world religion, it's about what you do. D-O, it's about what you do. In, in, in the Muslim faith, it's about bowing to Mecca three times a day. You have to make a pilgrimage. That's part of it. You, you know, that these are the things that you do to get God to let, their God to let you into their version of heaven. The Jewish faith, they've got things that they want, that hoops that you jump through, things that you've got to do. You have to keep the laws. You have to do it right. You have to, it's very rigid. It's, it's ritualistic. Almost every other religion has, it's, it's, a, it's a do religion. Christianity is different in that we add two letters to it, N and E, and it's done. It's all been done for you. It's not anything you did to get you into heaven. Jesus did it. The only thing you did was say yes to a gift. Jesus says, do you want to be forgiven? Yes, I would like to be forgiven. Here you go. But you've got to humble yourself. You've got to admit to Christ that you're not perfect, that you need him, that you need his forgiveness, you have to humble yourself and proclaim that publicly. I'm a failure. I'm a sinner. I cannot do this on my own. I need the forgiveness of God. And God says, I am ready and willing to forgive you. It's finished. It's all been done for you. There's a book in the Christian Bible that explains in quite detail <clears throat> what I'm talking about. It's the book of Romans. Romans chapter 3 gives a really good synopsis Romans chapter 3, verse 23. 
For everyone has sinned, and we all fall short of God's glorious standard. None of us measures up to God's standard. We don't even measure up to our own standard. Yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He declares us not guilty. Unrighteous becomes righteous. How did he do it? He did it through Jesus. <coughs> Excuse me. Verse 25, for God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in, the present, in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness for he himself is fair and just, and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. Jesus gave us two symbols to remind us of his sacrifice. One is baptism. The other is the Lord's Supper, what we call communion. That's why we, we put you under the water at Cross Lane. Some of you have been sprinkled, and I'm not here to cast aspersions on your faith heritage. I'm not making fun of that. I'm not putting that down. I'm simply telling you that if you were sprinkled, you missed all the symbolism of what baptism is about. They called it baptism, but it's not baptism, not biblically defined, it's not, and it misses all of the symbolism. The symbolism behind baptism is you never physically look more like Jesus than the day you're baptized. You are dying to yourself. What do you do with a dead person? You bury a dead person. And then just as Jesus was raised Again, you are raised to walk in the newness of life in him. And see, when you get sprinkled, all that goes away. None of that is, is thought about or talked about. It, it, God gave us baptism the way he gave it to us to instill that, that symbolism for us. It's important. And so if, you, if, if you've been sprinkled, I'm just, I'm not, again, I'm not putting you down. That's your faith heritage. That's important. But perhaps you should think about taking a step where you say, you know, I'm going to do that the way Jesus did it. I'm going to do that the way God calls me to do it. The word baptizo literally means to dip or dunk. That's why we do it that way, because there's some symbolism attached to it. Then you come to, to the symbolism of communion, where he takes these two things and he says, this represents my body and my blood. And he did this before he's been crucified. The disciples are looking at him like, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sins, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. The Old Covenant, the Hebrew Scriptures, there was a, a whole sacrificial system. You, you know, scapegoats and sacrificial lambs that would take away the sin from a nation, it was a symbol, it was a foreshadowing of what Jesus would do for us. Titus chapter 3, verse 5. God saves us not because of the righteous things that we've done, but because of his mercy. And then we come to the third part of the gospel. <clears throat> I accept by faith what God did for me. I accept by faith. Again, that's that, there's, a, there's a present there. You're being presented with something the question is are you going to receive what's been presented to you we turn gifts away all the time hey can i get you a sandwich no i'm good hey you want something to drink no i'm okay we we deny gifts things that are presented to us all the time sometimes we do it because we're too proud right no i'm not i don't want to take that i would like to have a sandwich but i would feel silly taking a sandwich from them right now sometimes our pride keeps us from it what you're saying is, I believe that Jesus died on the cross. He did it for me. Romans 3.22. We are made right by God, placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. Religion does not get you to heaven. God's grace gets you to heaven. You can do everything that, that is written in the Bible, and you can do it perfectly. And at the end of the day, if God decides he doesn't want to let you into heaven, you're not getting in. You're only admitted to heaven by God's grace. When God says, okay. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth 
that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. Real quickly, who knows what justified means? Say it with me. Just as if I'd never sinned. That's what justified means. Big, long word. We get, it scares us. Like, what is justified? Just as if I'd never sinned. One of the most beautiful words in all of the Christian Bible. Justified. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, just as if I'd never sinned. And it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Some of you need to settle this issue once and for all this morning. Some of you have never given your life to Christ. I'm Brett. I'm your friend. I love you. We've got to change that, okay? We've got to change it. I'm going to make it as easy as I know how to make it. I never do this. I never do what I'm about to do. I'm going to pray with you the sinner's prayer. I'm going to pray with you the sinner's prayer. And you're going to be able to pray along with me if you're willing to humble yourself and say, I want, I want, to, be, I want to be forgiven. The rest of you have already given your life to Christ. But I want you to bow your heads with me, all of you, and, and, and if you've already come to Christ, you can just rejoice in that you believe all this. But if you've never done it and you want to, you're going to have a chance right now to give your life to Christ if you just want to pray along with me. So please bow your heads. Father, we come and, and we, we offer to you this morning that we are not perfect. And for the one in the room this morning that's never given their life to Christ, uh, Lord, I acknowledge that I'm a sinner. I acknowledge that I don't do this right. I acknowledge that there are times that I'm so far away from you. And Lord, I want to humble myself and admit to you that I am a failure. I am not perfect. Only you are perfect. But God, I recognize that what you did on the cross, you did for me. And if I was the only person that ever lived, you would have done that for me. That's how much you love me. And Father, I have let you down. And I've tried to do this on my own terms and in my own way. And Father, I'm tired of that. I can't do it. So I need you. I confess my need for you. And if you're willing to give forgiveness to me, I would like to receive it. I am humbling myself to receive your gift of forgiveness for me. And Father, I want to take that gift and I want to live my life for you for the rest of my days. And I look forward to the day that I'll spend an eternity with you in heaven. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, look at me. If you just prayed that, you're not done. The next step is you get, for, you get baptized. Okay, you get baptized. There's a, there's a, you just did something privately where you expressed your need for God. Now you do this public thing where you express to the world, I belong to him. It's not unlike what we do in a wedding. I have a good friend, went to college with him. He wears a wedding band on each hand. He wears a one on his left hand for his wife, and on his right, he wears one that's inscribed with his baptism date. He says, that's the day I married Jesus. I love that. Because what you're doing in baptism is really the same thing that happens in a wedding. At a wedding, two people are proclaiming publicly what they've already declared to each other privately. And they say it in front of witnesses. So when you get baptized, that's what you're doing. You're making a public statement. I love Jesus, and I'm not ashamed of it, and I'm going to get baptized to prove it. I'm dying to myself. I'm going to be buried, and I'm going to be raised again to walk in the newness of life. If you've never done that, I encourage you to do that. That is the next step for you. Jesus commands it. Jesus did it. Last thing he said before he went to be with God was make disciples and baptize them. It's a big deal. Don't discount that part. You need to do it. Okay, where in the world am I? Holy cow. Um, April, I'm going to I'm gonna go to the, the five points, okay? going to the five points. Real quick, I'm going to give you five points. You're, you're like, gee whiz, this guy never shuts up. I promise we'll do this quick, okay, because my voice can't make it much longer. So Brett, how do I maintain this spiritual hunger? How do I do that? You've convinced me. How do, how do I do it? Tomorrow, how do I get better than I am today? What's that look like? Number one, I remind myself how much God loves me. Ephesians, you do it every day. You remind yourself how much God loves you. And may you have the power to understand, <clears throat> as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep is his love. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully, 
Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and the power that comes from God. Number two, stop filling up on junk food. Stop filling up on spiritual junk food. There is a God-shaped hole in you, and we have a tendency to throw everything in the world into that God-shaped hole, and it's only God-shaped. And everything else you throw in there, it just swallows it whole. It never gets filled. That's why you, you can try salary, status, sex, success, passion, possession, position, prestige, power, anything else you try to put in there, it's not going to fill you up. It is God-shaped. It is unique. There's no other shape like it. And until you put God there, you're not going to feel fulfilled. I'm just telling you, this is a secret to life. And you're like, well, Brad, I don't know if I believe that. Try it. Just try it. Proverbs chapter 15, a wise person is hungry for knowledge while the fool feeds on trash. If I'm always thinking about my sports team or politics or work or making money, I don't have a hunger for God. I'm feeding on other things. Okay, so this, I'm going to illustrate this. This is how I'd illustrate this. Thanksgiving's coming up. You hear me? Thanksgiving's coming up. So at Thanksgiving, what do they do? <clears throat> you know, they, they, they prepare this great big meal, nice turkey, all the fixings, all the things we love. Sweet potato casserole. <clears throat> love that. That stuff's amazing. And then, and then if you're a good host, you put out some appetizers, right? There's, a, there's like a veggie tray and some dip and things like that. If you're a really good host, you put out apple slices and caramel. You know that caramel stuff? If you're really good, you're putting that out. But what happens is there's always one guy, and it's usually me, that's, that really is hungry and ready to eat, and then they put out the appetizers, and I'm watching the game, and I'm dipping carrots and eating and dipping carrots and watching the game and talking and dipping carrots and eating. And then it comes time to eat, and they say, Brett, would you pray for us? Because I'm the pastor, so I always pray, right? Because I'm the designated prayer. So thank you, Lord, for this food. We're really thankful. Let's eat. So then I sit down at my plate, and I've got all this food. Sweet potato casserole is there. And, and I'm not hungry. I've filled up. And then it dawns on me, Brett, you filled up on carrots. Carrots, for crying out loud. There's turkey, there's beans, there's, there's every possible good thing that we can eat. And I filled up on carrot sticks. Cow, what is wrong? What is wrong? Isaiah, the Lord says, all you who are thirsty, come to me. Don't come to religion. Don't come to rules and regulations. Come to me and drink, and those of you who don't have money to buy food, come and eat for free. Why do you spend your money on something that isn't real food and doesn't really satisfy you? Come to me and you'll eat what is good. Your soul will enjoy the stuff that really satisfies. It talks about real food. Did you know that, that famines have gotten so bad in Africa at times in, in history that there's a soil, they, they will take the soil and bake it and eat it? It's like they can make it edible. I can't imagine that, but but the problem is it has no nutritional value at all, none. There's no, no, nothing good in it, no protein, no fats, no carb, nothing, nothing. And you can put it in your belly, but it doesn't fill you. It, it, you're not, your body doesn't get what it needs. Same thing in Australia. There's something called the Nauvoo fern in Australia. It gives off this spore. And during the depression that they had in Australia, that plant grows everywhere. So they would take this spore and they would make this porridge out of it. It has no nutritional value, none, none. But they would eat it and it would make their bellies feel full for a time, but they were dying with full bellies because they weren't getting any nourishment. It's a picture of America today. We are spiritually starved and we're putting all kinds of things in our system hoping that it fills us up. It's not going to fill you up. And if you saw somebody eating the Nauvoo fern spore in their porridge and you knew that it was going to fill them up but it was not going to keep them alive, you would say, stop that. Eat something good for you. Here, I'll give it to you. And that's what Jesus would say. Stop trying to fill yourself up with a bunch of stuff, a nonsense that's not going to do the trick. You and your spouse ever play the what are you hungry for game? You're going out to dinner, and you look at her and you say, 
What are you hungry for? And then, then starts the debate, and you sit in the driveway for 15 minutes trying to figure out where you go. You know, do you want pizza? Do you want steak? Do you want burgers? Do you want Mexican? Do you want Chinese, Japanese? What do you want? Here's the thing. Whatever you finally decide that you're hungry for, that's going to determine your direction, right? Your hunger determines your direction. So what are you hungry for? Spiritually, what are you hungry for? What are you, what are you trying to fill yourself up on? Whatever you're hungry for determines the direction of your life. If you're just hungry to play golf, you can do that, but it's not going to fill you. If you're hungry to make money, you can do that, but it's not going to fill you. Number three, make knowing God my number one goal. Not success, not happiness. Seek God. Happiness, is a success, happiness and success are a byproduct of knowing God. It's where you pray, God, I long for you. I want to know you more than I know anything else. Fill me up. I want, I want to be content. I want to be satisfied, and only you can do that. Psalm 63, you, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. He wrote this in the desert of Judah. Some of you are going through a desert right now. Some of you are in a marriage desert. Some of you are in a financial desert. What, do you, what happens in a desert? You hunger and thirst. So when you're in spiritual deserts of different kinds, what do you do? You hunger and you thirst for righteousness. Matthew 6, Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you what you need. I'm going to give you the last two real quick and we're done, okay? Get into God's word every day. Get into God's word every day. You feed yourself every day, get into God's word every day. Somehow, book on tape, on the app, open a Bible, somehow get into God's word every day. Number two, join a small group for support. You're in an army. Don't go it alone. You need people around you. You need somebody to watch your back. You need people on either side. Small groups just started for the fall, so you've missed them for the fall. If you're not in one, they will come back around again in the spring. Get involved in a small group and have some people that have your back and encourage you, pray for you, walk with you. I close with this, Proverbs chapter 2, verse 20. Join the company of good men and women. Keep your feet on the tried and true paths. Hang out with people who are hungry for God. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. We need it. Let me pray for you. Father, the world is full of things to take our attention away from what we just talked about this morning. It is really easy to walk out these doors and forget all this. Father, help us to understand that our hunger drives us in a direction. And may we be found hungering and thirsting for you more than we hunger and thirst for anything else. And may that hunger and thirst drive us to your throne, drive us to the foot of the cross, drive us to the place where we admit our need for you, and we surrender every day to you and ask you to fill that God-shaped place in our life. Not until we do that, Lord, will we really know satisfaction. I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.